will a return to a track he likes turn around the fortunes of Anno de Or? He gets ready to run the rescheduled Santa Anita Derby. Plus, will horse racing see any long-term gain after being the only game in town since early March? We'll have all that and more on this edition of In the Gate. They're in the gates. They're about to move in. They roll side. And they're off. As they move to the top of the straight, it's a hit on the finish. This is In the Gate, ESPN's Thoroughbred Racing Podcast. My name is Barry Abrams. You can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. You can also get us on our YouTube channel by searching In the Gate Podcast. You can find us on Stitcher, SoundCloud, TuneIn, the Pink Apple Podcatcher app, and of course in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And please take a minute to rate and review the show. Those reviews really help others find us. Maybe drop a line to the professors at America's Best Racing and let them know what best means when it comes to podcasts. Make sure they don't exclude us next time from their Fan Choice Awards, won't you? Anno Dior didn't get his two-year-old season started until the end of September. He won his debut by eight lengths, but that was up at Golden Gate Fields, not a track where you see too many grade one level competitors. And the race was on turf, so it was a little surprising then to see Anno Dior entered in the Breeders' Cup, and not the juvenile turf, but the juvenile dirt race. Even more surprising, at 28 to 1, was how he did. Midway on the far turn, stormed the corner, three wide on Odor, and Anodor spurts up on the outside to five for the lead, and Recky Crew is also firing. He swings to the outside, stormed the court, in the meantime, maintains it narrowly. Storm the court is in front, challenged by Anodor. Storm the court and Anodor coming for the wire together. Storm the court and Flavian Pratt, Anodor and Juan Hernandez. Storm the court, pulls it off in the TDG Peters Cup Juvenile. Anno Dior backed that second-place performance up with a second in the Los Alamitos Futurity a month later. But in two starts this year, Anno Dior has yet to hit the board. A ninth-place finish in the Risen Star in New Orleans, and then a fifth in the first division of the Arkansas Derby, won by the now-retired Nadal. Might a return to Santa Anita, site of his best performance, help Anno Dior grab the gold ring? Which is the meaning of his name, after all. Let's get more on Anno Dior by welcoming in his trainer, Blaine Wright, for the first time here to win the gate. What do you make of his first two starts this year after his successful two-year-old season? Well, I don't really have a take on the race in Louisiana at the fairgrounds. I mean, that, to me, was just a throwout race. I have no excuse why he ran so bad. You know, we, we just, as soon as it happened and H, the horse checked out clean and everything, we just erase that from our mind and move forward. Uh, so we we moved on to the Santa Anita Derby, and he was prepping really good for that. And we were actually had moved to Santa Anita with him. He breezed down there a week before the first scheduled derby, and obviously they got shut down. So we got back home and had to choose another route. So all of a sudden, you know, the Arkansas Derby was really the only race that made sense. And, uh, you know, he hooked a hell of a horse in, in uh, Charlton back there who just run everybody's shoes off. And, you know, that race, my horse, I think he was good enough to, to place for sure. He broke tardy, and we had to use him a little bit more than, you know, a guy would like to use his horse the first part, and that probably took something out of him. You know, but he still got beat, and the winner went convincingly. But I still believe i got to have to be able to run with the, 
the horses that run second, third, and fourth in that race for sure because we were all kind of pretty much together at that point. It was either the second or third place horse come down on us a little bit. Probably not enough for an inquiry, but, you know, hopefully running back in 30 days instead of 10 weeks and eight weeks, hopefully it'll make a difference. Have you done anything differently with his training and travel this time around? No, not necessarily. I mean, obviously we didn't have to fly. It's a seven-hour ride basically from Golden Gate to Santa Anita down the I-5, and I know that he likes that track. He ran probably one of his best races over that track. He had a super, super breeze in 113 flat. Uh, leading up to the first scheduled Santa Anita Derby. So I've always really felt like that horse, you know, even though that's not his home, hopefully it's his favorite track, but he's still got to uh, go down and prove himself. How has it been for your staff and you during the shutdown and now resumption of racing? Well, you know, to begin with, I think everybody else, we're like everyone else. You're awfully worried about getting sick, but at the same time, we all have to go to work and take care of these animals. So Golden Gate, I think they beat the curve before a lot of the racetracks and uh, David Dugan installed protocols right away and social distancing and, you know, different ways to come in and out of the barn area. And I think that's one reason why we got to stay open a bit longer than a few of the tracks is because he was proactive on that deal and went right, right ahead. And, and I think that helped us out. And I also think that's a big reason why we got going. The Golden Gate management was, you know, on top of everything. So you know, kudos to them. But, you know, it's different for everybody. You know, you're, you're, you're masked up. You try to stay close to the protocols as you can as far as social distancing. But, you know, we still had to get up at 4.30 every morning and come and muck them stalls out and train those horses. So that part stayed the same. And and I think it gave a, at least our tight-knit family within the community of racing, I think it gave all of us a sense of relief in the fact that we could get out of the house and get fresh air. But at the same time, you know, we really had to be cautious when we left the barn area. So uh, in that sense, the negative part was we didn't have any idea when we'd get reopened once we got shut down. And that was a lot of uncertainty for our whole industry, not just Golden Gate, but the whole industry as a whole around the country. I mean, I run a large stable in Seattle as well, and I stayed in California the entire time. I didn't go home and see my wife and daughter for you know, a good seven weeks, I don't think. So, you know, it's that part of it's tough. But at the same time, I was happy. I got to go outside every day and got to breathe the air and smell the manure. <laughs> you know, we're, we're working through it. Does it smell the same through a mask? Oh, yeah. Yeah, you don't change that. Well, that's as basic as breathing to you, trainer Blaine Wright joining <laughs> us here on In the Gates. All of your childhood at the old Long Acres track near Seattle, taking yeah. care of ponies in your parents' stable. But you said you never had aspirations of being a trainer. What did you want to do? Oh, well, you know, every kid wants to be a jockey. I mean, that's the number one thing. I mean, I don't know any of us kids on the backside that even, you know, are big or fat or whatever, what we were as we were growing up, we rode the manure boxes. We'd get baling twine and stand up on it like it was our our uh, stirrups. And there's quite a few whips that got uh, ruined because we were beating the crap out of the manure, concrete <laughs> manure boxes, you know. And yeah, so, you know, I played soccer, I skied, I wrestled. I did the things all the regular kids did. But, you know, we always had the racetrack, and that was uh, a big part of the childhood, too. And I never you know, really envisioned being a trainer until I kind of got in my teens. At that point, I knew I wasn't going to be a jockey, but I knew I had to have my hands 
in the horse business somehow, whether it was training. Uh, I worked on the gate crew. I worked in the jocks room. I worked in concessions, the front side kitchen. I did pretty much everything. I was a sweeper. I was a runner, you know, so I worked in all the jobs all through high school. And then once I got out and kind of got into college, that wasn't really my thing. So, you know, I started just hanging out at the track more. And before I know it, I'm, you know, my dad's assistant trainer and buying my first horse. And there you go. But you left for a while, did you not? Yeah, I left. In 99, I got married and decided to stay home. Fortunately, you know, the marriage didn't work out. But uh, I got in the sheet metal industry, went through their journeymanship and or apprenticeship and got my card. And Grant Forrester was big, big name at Emerald Downs at that time. And all the while, I worked on the gate crew uh, for those five years. Uh, just there and again, have to have my hand in my in the horse racing business. And my dad still had his stable running at that time. So my Thursday, Friday nights and Saturday and Sunday days and nights were spent at the racetrack, either helping my dad and working on the gate. So I never really got out of it. I just got out of the assistant trainer side for a while. And Grant offered me a job that, you know, I couldn't refuse. He had the best horses on the grounds, the best, I don't want to say the best clients, but you know, the clients that brought the best horses to the, to the racetrack and being an assistant trainer for him, put me right in the middle of, you know, leading trainer standings and, and a great amount of stake races there. And the opportunity to work for a different outfit than my dad, you learned somebody else's craft and what his parents had brought to the table. I mean, his dad's a hall of fame Canadian trainer. So you're talking about Grant Forrester. Yeah. His dad, Dave Forrester. So he had turned business over to Grant at that point and Grant had I think that might have been his third or fourth year on his own and I was handling most of his horses in the gate and Grant and I are pretty much the same age and our dads were really good friends going back to the days in in Idaho when they all raced together back there so you know it was an opportunity to learn somebody else's system and I spent a couple years with him and then decided you know what it's now or never and I branched out on my own and when I did, my dad was ready to kind of downsize at the time. So some of those clients he trained for for a number of years that watched me being raised on the backside of Lonikers and Yakima Meadows, he naturally pushed about a dozen horses my way. And then, you know, I had I had a few of my other clients that were with Grant, gave me a horse here or there. And, you know, I was lucky enough my first year of training, I had 20 head of my of clientele, you know, and it, it helped me out a lot. Given your connection to the Pacific Northwest, I mean, what's more important to you, potentially winning your first grade one if you can take the Santa Anita Derby or winning the Long Acres Mile? Well, I'd like to take them both. I mean, <laughs> anytime you have the opportunity to win either one of those races, I mean, you know, you're, you're, you've got the right clientele that are bringing the right horses to the racetrack. So, you know, for right now, I've been trying to get that Long Acres Mile, not just for me, but for my, my mom and dad and my sisters. You know, my dad's he tried for as a jockey and as a trainer for, you know, 40-some years in the Northwest trying to pick that thing off. And I've always felt you're lucky enough to have a horse good enough to run in it and even luckier to win it. Well, I've been second two times now, I think second, third. My last five entries, I think, are two seconds of third and a fourth and a fifth or something like that. And I just missed by the narrowest of margins last year. So, you know, you can bet if I have some good older horses that are going good at that point of the year, we're going to take another stab at that race. 
But right now the task at hand is the Santa Anita Derby and we got to come down there and we got to, we got to, you know, hopefully make our best showing and we got to try to get to the Derby for, for Mr. Redekop. He's, he's uh, put a heck of a lot into this business and he stepped his game up so he could start buying some Derby type horses. And we were lucky enough to get to the Preakness last year and, you know, hopefully we can grind and get to the Derby. That was with another twist of fate. Now, if the Longmaker's Mile is for three and up, you know, if an Anno de Or jumps up and runs well in the Santa Anita Derby, you'd have an interesting choice to make. The Kentucky Derby is September 5th. The Longacres Mile is one week later on the 13th. <laughs> Peter Radekop and you greatly value racing in the Pacific Northwest. Where would you run Anno de Or? Well, he'd run in the Kentucky Derby for sure, because Peter's got two or three others that are good enough to run in or, or win the Longacres Mile, and hopefully they'll be going good enough at that time that he can pick or choose one of those horses to go there. You have had a couple of graded stakes winning horses in the last decade, Alert Bay and Hudson Landing, but that caliber of runner is not the majority of your stable. What have you learned from those two about how to handle a higher achieving horse like Anno Dior? Well, I can tell you, like Alert Bay, you know, he was going to make anybody look good. That horse he didn't, he didn't need a trainer because he had it, he had it figured out. He was just, I mean, you pointed him in the right direction and he went and took it. I mean, that horse, he was the one horse I've had that came sharper off the van than he did getting on it. You know, he, he ran good races at Golden Gate, but I mean, for a three year span, that horse shipped across, you know, states down South, New Mexico, Canada, anywhere, anywhere you wanted to go, you loaded him up and went and he took it right to him. That horse was just, he was going to make anybody look good. Another twist of fate, he's a bit tougher of a horse to handle. He's a little bit hot-headed and hot-blooded. Uh, he trains 100% every day. He doesn't take days off. And uh, we've had, you know, some setbacks with him, but he's right around the corner from having his first breeze. And I just try to evaluate my horse day to day. And if I'm lucky enough to get my hands on a good one, uh, it's a great feeling. And at the same time, We've learned a little bit about Nanu Door. He's way more laid back than the other two horses. Um, You can turn him off as far as his training goes. You don't have to uh, worry about him trying to run off with the rider or put too much into it. You have to actually ask him to do a lot more. He's a big, lazy colt, but he's beautiful. And I think the horse, he'll handle the synthetic, he'll handle the turf, and he obviously likes the dirt. So, you know, hopefully we'll continue to keep going forward with him. What type of setup would you want to see for Anno Dior in the Santa Anita Derby? Well, I think that uh, his running style works down there. We're going to try not to put too much pressure on him early this time. You know, uh, he could be back a little bit further than his other races suggest. But at the same time, that track, you know, they get strung out in them races down there. So I don't know if you want to be real, real far back. But I think, you know, we could probably be three to four lengths off the pace unless they're you know, wing dinging out front there. And the one thing Victor has to know is this horse always tries to lose ground on the turns and you have to ride him through the turn very, very aggressively to keep him up there. He doesn't have that explosive move. So, you know, Victor's going to have to keep pecking away at him and going down there with open mind and hopefully things work out. Trainer Blaine Wright sending Anno Dior in the Santa Anita Derby. Thank you so much for a few minutes, sir. Best of luck. Yes, thank you very much for having me. Horse racing's been essentially the only game in town for the past two months or so since the shutdown started. 
Will the sport see any long-term benefit as a result? We'll get into that question when the In The Gate podcast continues. Welcome back to In The Gate. If you're any kind of a sports fan, then for just about two months since the start of the COVID-19 shutdown, horse racing has been the only game in town. The other major sports are slowly starting to come back online, starting with auto racing and the occasional mixed martial arts event, but the stick and ball sports still have not begun. And so, the decentralized, hideously disorganized sport of horse racing, at least in the United States, has had a whole bunch of new sports fans plop right into their lap, while hardly even trying. How do we know this? Well, without even running a race until this week, the New York Racing Association reports a threefold increase in the number of people who signed up for a betting account on Arkansas Derby Day this year versus the same day last year, when the Kentucky Derby, the more well-known race, of course, was run. A threefold increase year over year, and roughly 70% of those who signed up for the lowest level account eventually put money in and started wagering. Naira expected 20%. TVG, the main simulcast racing channel here in the States, reports a twofold increase in new betting account signups and a 50% increase in the total amount of money wagered in April compared with last year. And for most of April, just five tracks were running, and only one of them, Gulfstream Park, would be considered a major track. And Churchill Downs's online wagering platform saw modest growth, 8.3% in the first quarter of this year, which includes March. So by those measures, things are looking up for racing. The question is, will it stick when all of the other entertainment options return? The person best equipped to give perspective on this topic is our friend and ESPN alumnus Dave Tooley, who now writes for the Vegas Sports and Information Network, VSIN. And he joins us here on In The Gate. What are you hearing about this spike in horse race betting? Is it a mirage, or are people discovering and liking what they're seeing? I believe it's uh, a very good news with with the spike in you know signups and handle. Yeah, many of the individual tracks have also been reporting big creases in handle. You know, even the Fonner Parks and the Will Rogers Downs Parks that were running on Mondays and Tuesdays uh, early on during during the shutdown. I I like to be an optimist, <laughs> and because I because I, I love the sport, and you hope that people that are exposed to it are going to stick around. Although I have to be, have to be a realist. I mean, you know, we we know Russian ping pong has seen a spike, Korean baseball has seen a spike, all all these other sports too. But you know, I, I think for the most part, most people are going to go back to what they were doing pre-pandemic um, when things get back to normal or at least a new normal. Again, you hope that some of these newbies to the, to the horse racing stick around, but. You know, it's just like when you know, New Jersey was allowed to have sports betting, and then you know all the other states coming on board. You know, everyone talked about how oh, everyone's going to be sports betting now. Well, that's not necessarily true. I mean, most people that are sports betting now were sports betting before. <laughs> they still liked it. They still found a way to do it. You know, just just because it became legal. While some people would get on board because of the legality aspect of it, again, I, I think that this, you know, the increase hasn't been as much as everyone expected just because, you know, like I said, most people that wanted to be sports betting were already sports betting. 
It has been nearly two years since that Supreme Court ruling that paved the way for sports betting to be rolled out legally, with some places offering wagering on stick and ball games as well as horse racing. What are you hearing about whether there's any crossover between the two by customers? Yeah, there is crossover. I mean, there's always been crossover. The main reason why... I was the Las Vegas correspondent for Daily Racing Forum <laughs> from 2000 to 2007, and then uh, freelance with a weekly column from 2007 to 2014, is because there was that crossover. Uh, horse racing betters love sports betting and, and vice versa. So, you know, there's always been that crossover, but again, it's not for everyone. Horse racing does take a lot of time to study and really get good at uh, at your wagering. So we understand that it's not for everyone. And uh, frankly, I don't think, you know, horse racing has always marketed it itself well. Um, you know, for a long time, there weren't many horse races on TV you could watch until we had cable. And even now, sometimes on cable, it's hard to find, find out which, which tracks are carrying which races. It's funny you mention that, because finally, after two months of a virtual monopoly, the Breeders' Cup and other industry groups, including the Mensa members at America's Best Racing, are actually banding together. Among the many things you thought you'd never see, courtesy of the pandemic, the groups are starting a national advertising campaign for thoroughbred racing designed to send people to a website that has fan education materials and things like that. Now, you know the sports better population as well as anyone in this business. What attention will they pay to this campaign? Uh, it's the same thing I said before, I think. A lot of it's going to be preaching to the choir. You, you're going to have, people that are already following horse racing you know, aren't, aren't going to be doing it more because of this ad campaign. And while it is good to see any cooperation within the racing industry, and I, I certainly do encourage that, it, it's also a little disconcerting that, it, yeah, it took two and a half months, like you said. <laughs> Everything shut down in, in mid-March, and yet this this doesn't come out to the end of May. Uh, I mean, right away at VEASAN, I started doing weekly horse racing columns in mid-March. Uh, Chris Felica, your colleague and my former colleague at ESPN, uh, he's, he's been putting out more horse racing picks on Twitter since the shutdown. So, again, horse racing, a lot of its problems over the years have been you know, the lack of cooperation between uh, between tracks and networks and all that. And so that's kind of indicative of that, that, yeah, it would take them two and a half months. That's a whole other program we could do right there. Dave Tooley <laughs> of the Vegas Sports and Information Network, VSIN, joining us here on In the Gate. I don't even think the racing companies we just mentioned, those with online wagering platforms, would expect to continue the kind of upticks they've seen during the shutdown once the stick-and-ball sports come back. But what would that stick-and-ball fan want from racing? In other words, what would you consider best practices for racing companies in order to keep a percentage of the people they've inherited? Boy, that's that's a million-dollar question, isn't it? Because, <laughs> uh, yeah, for for the long, the long time... Um, you know, horse racing industry has struggled to to bring in new new fans. I mean, we all know the demographics of horse racing fans definitely skews much much older 
and it doesn't have the appeal of the younger generations. And yeah, it's a problem that uh, I don't know how to fix. Let's digress for just a moment here. Give us a treetops view of how the casino world is handling the shutdown and what their prospects are going forward. Uh, well, specifically here in Las Vegas, another uh, disappointing part about the shutdown is that there was no there was no horse racing apps from the casinos uh, here in Nevada the last two and a half months. You know, you would hope that there would be that opportunity for more people getting accounts and wagering like we've seen you know, throughout the country, that actually hasn't happened here in the, in the gambling capital. Uh, so, uh, again, that, that, that was a little you know, discouraging to see. Uh, there, there was four sports betting apps that remained open during the time at Caesars, MGM, Circa, and William Hill, but no horse racing. So, again, that was another uh, you know, misstep by the industry, I believe. Where are these casinos in, in determining when to reopen? Um, it's a mismatch of casinos on the Strip uh, that are going to be opening. But downtown, uh, the Derek Stevens uh, casinos at the D and the Golden Gate are opening and the Golden Nugget. I believe it's more than 50% of them are opening with a few more uh, taking a slightly slower approach. Uh, the, the Westgate, I know, is taking reservations starting June 18th, so that's looking like the target day that they'll open. And uh, Jay Cornier at the Westgate told me that yeah, the sports, the Superbook won't open until uh, the casino opens. Craig Fravell, former CEO of the Breeders' Cup and current CEO of Stronic Racing, which includes Santa Anita, said of racing's current monopoly, no one thought this would be a great windfall. So... You alluded to it earlier, but bottom line, when the stick and ball sports are back in action, do any of the gains racing has made in its customer base stick? You know, I still think it might for the big events, you know, as we've seen in the past. People are still generally excited out there about the uh, Kentucky Derby being run on September 5th, you know, God willing. Yeah, so I think, you know, that will still get the, the attention. And then, the, you know, Breeders' Cup in the fall. And uh, the Preakness in the fall, the, the Belmont Stakes is coming up on June 20th. So uh, we'll, we'll really get to see you know, how many people get involved with that. But um, I, I, th- I think most people will be betting what they've been betting before. And again, those big races uh, sh- should still have their, uh, their high handles. The biggest monopoly the sport has ever had, even going back a 100 years when they shared the stage with baseball. Well, Dave Tooley, thank you so much for kind of setting the stage for us here. We hope we all stay safe going forward and that all the sports come back. Absolutely. Thanks. Take care, everyone. Our thanks once again to Dave Tooley and to Blaine Wright. You can say horse racing's system of policing itself is weak. Too many loopholes and states with different rules. But the standard of law enforcement in our country should be uniform, with officers coming from the same proverbial schools. Law enforcement's like a flowchart with a clearly set chain of command, from an individual officer right on up to the leaders of those forces, to state governments and beyond. Are they all responsible here? The answer is yup. What happened in Minnesota, like what happened in New York City and Baltimore, the list goes on and on, unfortunately shows that we're not yet created equal, as a civil rights crisis once again is spawned. If the most imminent threat to human existence, the coronavirus outbreak, can't make us see how precious we all are, 
than the fates of George Floyd and the officers charged in his tragic death remind us that a better world is still far. You can get us on our YouTube channel by searching In The Gate Podcast. You can get us on Stitcher, SoundCloud, TuneIn, the Pink Apple Podcatcher app, and of course in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. For the full In The Gate experience, subscribe now in the Listen tab of the ESPN app. And please take a minute to rate and review the show. Those reviews really help others find us, including the geniuses down at America's Best Racing. Let them know who the best podcast is for the Fan Choice Awards next November. And you can follow me on Twitter at B. Abrams Voice or on Facebook at Barry Abrams Voice. That's In The Gate for this week. I'm Barry Abrams. We hope this finds you safe and healthy as you listen to this, and we'll see you next time.